0: Okay, we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, and last week we had read a little bit about where Saul was with his children, with his son Jonathan, and how in this verse 1, how he had reigned approximately 40 years where they had inserted that word. But part of this, let me mention, comes from Acts chapter 13 verse 21. So in the New Testament, we have an indication that says, Paul reigned, or Saul reigned, for about forty years, and that's how you know, part of these these indications come. It says that that Jonathan had gone in in verse three. Jonathan smote the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines that was at Giba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." So what happened was. Jonathan was tired of this stalemate going on and he attacked one of the garrisons. Now this word garrison could mean the commander. So it might have just been a single individual among the Philistines that Jonathan killed or it might have been a group, a garrison, you know, some, some clan of Philistines that was there. And then Saul had a trumpet blown and said, let all the Hebrews hear. So he's now calling beyond his standing army to all the the Jews that had lived, even among the Philistines. He's reaching out to them because we had heard in verse 2, Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with him in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Geba. So there were only 3,000 men in the standing army, but now he was calling the greater greater, uh, um, army, the reserves in a sense. And in verse 5, Now the Philistines assembled... To to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash east of Beth Avon. So you see, now the Philistines come with 30,000 chariots. This is a huge number 6,000 men on horses, and then people that they couldn't even be counted. So many people, they came to attack Israel because of what Jonathan had done in attacking this garrison. And remember, there were only 3,000 people of the standing army. And none of them had any weapons except Saul and Jonathan himself. So none of them, all they had, you know, were sticks and a plowshare. So they didn't even have weapons. In verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for they were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. So they hid themselves in five places. Caves, thickets, cliffs, cellars and pits. So this is where they were hiding. Because they were afraid for what was going to happen. You see 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and people without number that, that, that are massing. To attack, you're going to hide. And also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was, in, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So even some of the Jews left. They went to the, to the east of the Jordan just to get out of it, because they knew there was going to be a huge slaughter. But others followed him, just trembling. You know, we, we've got to fight. Verse 8, Now they waited seven days according to the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering, and as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him a ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to to Gibeah of Benjamin. And and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. Okay, so let me just finish reading this section. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies, one company toward Aphra, to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. Okay, so the Philistines are attacking in three groups. They're going into three different parts of the land, attacking attacking and ravaging. Up in verse verse, uh, 8... It says that Saul was told by Samuel the prophet to wait seven days. Wait seven days for his coming. And this was not unusual. In fact, if you look back in, just in, in chapter 10 of the same book of 1 Samuel verse 10.8, 8, it says, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So, this waiting seven days was, was indeed procedural. I mean, this is, this is what was done. They were to wait seven days. There, uh, uh, Samuel showed up after the, on the seventh day. And here we see that as soon as Saul had finished offering up the offering, well, what's wrong with Saul offering up the offering? For, for one thing, he's not a Levite. For another thing, he's not a priest. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was not to have done this. He was told by the prophet, and to be told by a prophet in those days was a command of God Himself. He was told to wait seven days, and immediately after, immediately after his rashly offering up the offering, it says in verse 10, as soon as he finished offering up the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. So it was still the seventh day. He was told to wait. You know, so often faith is tested by our waiting. And we hate waiting. We feel that we have to do this. I have to do this or I'm going to lose this opportunity. Yet God has said, wait. God tells us to wait. Waiting is a show and an act of faith on many occasions. This is how God tests our faith. To to call us to wait. I mean, examples are He calls us to wait in physical relationships before marriage. He calls us to do this. This is something that is good to be done. He has called us to do this, but we feel that we can't wait. He calls us to wait in certain relationships with people. He calls us to wait on Him to provide the right people, that you don't have to be thinking, well, I've got to go out with this unbeliever because there's no believers coming. No, God says wait. God says you're not to be unequally yoked. He calls us to different things. There are times in our lives where He tells us to wait, and this is an act of faith. Saul did not fulfill this act. And as a penalty, the penalty for this, in verse 13, is Samuel says to him, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. for, For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. So, he wasn't going to lose his kingship, but he wasn't going to have a dynasty. Had he fulfilled what God had wanted him to do that day, there would have been a dynasty of Saul. But he did not fulfill that, and because of that, his son was not going to become king. It wasn't going to ha- be handed down through his family. There would be no dynasty. He, he himself would still fulfill his kingship. The kingship will be withdrawn from him later because of another act of disobedience. The kingship will be withdrawn from him. But at this point, he's still very much king. God didn't uh, 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 pull him back out of that office. But he did declare, you've just lost the dynasty. So there are ramifications for our not obeying. And, and, uh, and for not waiting. And here, here's what happened to King Saul. But look at, look at what the scriptures say. They say, um, in verse 14, The Lord has sought out for himself a man After his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So it just says that the Lord has chosen somebody else now. Now now at this point, even even Samuel doesn't know who that man is. Samuel doesn't know that this is going to be David. We only know this by by looking at, at, at other passages that come later. But at this point, all we know, and all Saul knows at this point, is God has chosen another man. Now, look, what what are the criteria for the choice of the man? You know, we might think that God would look for a mighty man of valor, some great man of war, or maybe maybe a really intelligent man. If somebody's really intelligent; they could they could uh, figure out how to give a, get us a strategy over, over our, our enemies. Maybe someone really handsome that we'd be proud of. Really handsome man. Maybe that would be who God would choose. Or maybe a, a great military, someone great in military strategy who would certainly know how to rout the Philistines. Maybe a, a, a superb tactician. Somebody who would know how to approach every situation. Maybe just a leader of men. Somebody who's a terrific leader of men. All of these are important attributes. But that is not what God sought out. It says, The Lord sought out for Himself a man after His own heart. This is what God used as the basis for His choice. Knowing that the other things could be taught to Him. You give me a man, God says, after my own heart. I can deal with all the other issues that need to be taught to this individual. You give me a man that's after my own heart. I want a man. It says, he sought for himself a man after his own heart. This is what he sought in David. And then I think back, well, what is it that was an indication that David was a man after God's own heart? Well, he thought a lot about God. David, in his younger years, wrote many of the Psalms and continued writing the Psalms into his later years. But many of the Psalms were written when he was just a young man. So constantly his mind was thinking about God. That there was an interest in pleasing God in his life. Another thing about David is that in failure, he was open to reproof. Remember we had read last week about King Asa when the, these, this prophet came. God sent the prophet and it says that King Asa was so offended... And hey, I'm king. Who are you to say this to me? That he put this prophet in the prison. And he started abusing some of God's people. This sounds like a simple thing. But the older you get, and the more famous you become in your little sphere of influence, the harder it is going to be to receive instruction. So that... When you're, you know, not when you're a starting engineer, but when you're head of engineering for, for Bayer or for, for whatever company you work for, when, you, when you're head of engineering, it's going to be much harder to receive reproof, to receive instruction. But you have to remember, this is exactly what God indicates were the qualities within David. So that when David was finally confronted by the prophet Nathan, and said, you are the man who has sinned. You know, he bowed his head and he acknowledged his sin, rather than to just throw Nathan in the prison. A man after his own heart. This is what God chose. The other things he figured he could teach him. You remain open to the Scriptures and open to the Word of God, and these things can come. And then you say, well, what about Saul? Look look at what was happening. His people were deserting him. He had four, he had uh, uh, 2,000 men, and now it says he had 600. So 1,400 had now deserted him. He started out earlier on in the chapter with 2,000 were with him and 1,000 with Jonathan. And now he counted the men, and there were only 600 in verse 15. He only had about 600 men. So 1,400 had deserted him. And this is exactly what was Saul's argument. Saul had said, when, when he was confronted by Samuel, in verse 11, he says, Because I saw that people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, which was not true. He came within the appointed days. It just wasn't until the last hour of that day, or until he had, had, had committed this, this act. You did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Mikmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down to me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So in other words, he tries to put this in in a good way. Well, I had not asked the favor of the Lord, so by doing this I was asking asking for the favor of the Lord. He could have asked the favor of the Lord. A man could certainly pray. I mean, David prayed all the time. David was not not, uh, a Levite. David, David was of the tribe of Judah. David couldn't offer up offerings without a priest there. But David prayed all the time. And so, in other words, he was making an excuse that I had to do this. So he says, so I forced myself and offered up the burnt offering. Like, I was unwilling. You know, I was an unwilling partner in all of this. I had to force myself to do this. You know, somebody, I just took myself by the arm and did this. It's not like I wanted to do it. And how we can rationalize these sort of things in our mind. And you say, well, if all these people were fleeing from him, wasn't this in some way justified? Well, remember, what they had, and what he had as his manual was the book of Judges. Because we know that because he had used this to conquer King Nahash. He had used the strategy that was mapped out by Gideon. But look back at, in, in Judges chapter 6 at what God says to Gideon when Gideon was afraid to go forth. So if you turn to Judges, which comes just just a couple books before 1 before, uh, Samuel, go to Judges chapter 6. And it says, Judges chapter 6, verse 14. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? This is what the Lord did to Gideon. He said, The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian, for I have sent you. And what he taught Gideon is that God is able to save by many or by few. And remember, he cut down Gideon's men to about 300 before he had him attack Midian to show him that, that you could prevail by many or by few. And this, this is not something that wasn't known. And in fact, keep your finger there in Judges chapter 6 because we're coming right back. But if you flip back on over to, to 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, this same thing, was said by, by Jonathan, Saul's son, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of the, of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So Saul's own son knew this concept from the book of Judges, that God is not hindered from saving by many or by few. Saul's own son had known this. So when God spoke, look at this back in Judges about Gideon. Amazing. It says in verse 14 of Judges chapter 6, The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength. The Lord looked at Gideon and said, Go in this your strength. What strength? My look. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength. If our look to God saves us, how much His look toward us will do in our lives. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? In other words, if I have sent you, it's as good as done. You go in this your strength. Just the look of God gives us strength. Just to look from God can give us strength. You know, you will come to times in your life and you'll wonder, how can I do this? How could I accomplish this? Say, Lord, look to me. Look to me. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength. Your strength is to look at me. King Saul had this book. King Saul had this pattern. This is often what the Lord does, is He delivers in this way. This is exactly how He delivers. A very common way in which He delivers. You know, there's this this duality in our lives, and, and, and uh, Pascal writes about this. It's really quite amazing. If you look at our lives as believers, um, God is continuing to call us into a place where we would not just be self-reliant and full of pride. He doesn't want us to be self-reliant and full of pride. On the other hand, he's calling us from a place of self-pity and depression. So there is this razor's edge on which he wants us to walk. And this is the life of the believer. This is the life of the believer, both in the Old and the New Testament. And we walk on this razor's edge. And on one side of it, if we just teeter to one side, we're walking in this, this self-reliance and pride. Which is what Saul was doing. I can do this thing. This is, this is the pride. And the other side of this thing is to walk in this self-pity and depression. I can't do anything. I'm terrible at just terrible and you see this this same sort of thing that that Jesus Jesus dealt with these issues even with his disciples so his disciples go out and Some people start start getting on Jesus' case because he was walking toward Jerusalem as he was heading toward Samaria. It says he was walking with his face toward Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans didn't greet him at all, and he had to go around that area. He had to circle around it because the Samaritans weren't very welcoming because they knew Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem. They didn't care much for that place. After all, Jesus had already done in Samaria. So, two of his disciples say, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And smite these people. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are of. I mean, He takes them in their pride. Let's just, you know, you do this to my Lord. You know, we can call down fire and kill you guys. And the Lord takes them and says, "Uh uh-uh. And He pushes them back the other way on this nice edge. You can't walk in pride like that. He says, you don't know what spirit you're of. And then on the other side, they're feeling depressed and down. He says, just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He pushes them back up to this side. And there's this razor's edge on which we walk. And you'd think that after a while we've learned how to balance perfectly on this. There is no balance. This is an atomically sharp tip. Alright? And there, there, there's, there's, there is no balancing on it. We are either one way, falling one way, or falling the other way. And God keeps propping us up. In this direction we fall this way, and in this direction we fall this way. This is the life of the believer. This constant struggle between self-reliance and pride—that I can do this without without fully taking dependency on the Lord and His grace—and this other side feeling like I can't do anything. I'm miserable. You know, here I will get on my knees and cry out to God to help me deliver a message because I don't know what I'm going to be sharing on a Sunday. You know, I have my notes. I've been working on it all week, but it's just never come together. And I may not know. And it's, God, help me. And then all of a sudden, I deliver this message and I see, God helped me. And I got through this. And it went okay. And you know what happens? this stinking insidious pride comes in. Look what I've done. You think, well, why why do you do that? Don't you know God helped me? Yeah, I know God helped me, but I don't know why I fall into pride. Because there's no balancing on this edge. We either are on one side or the other. And this happens in the life of the believer. This is where we are. We are utterly dependent upon God. He did this with His disciples. He had to encourage them. He said, just as the Father has been with me, I am with you. And then on the other side, he says, just, just settle down. You don't know what spirit you're of. You know, Satan has desired to shift you as chaff from wheat. You think you can stand with me? You're crazy. You can't stand with me. You'll be overrun by the enemy. And so he picks us up both ways. The life of the believer. You see this in the lives of these people where he brings them to a point where they're supposed to cry out to him in utter dependency. And then he wants to nudge us back when we fall into pride, thinking that we can do this thing, that we can be a priest, that we can take this upon ourselves, that we don't need church. You know, I don't need that. You know, I got the Bible and got the Word of God. Don't, don't you know? I, I God comes to my home too. Don't you know that? You know, I have my Bible. Why do I need to go to church? I don't need that community. Well, the Scriptures say, "Don't neglect the fellowship of the saints," which is the habit of some. But, but uh, uh, come together and all the more to c- encourage one another as the day draws near. That's in, in, in Hebrews tells us that. So that it talks about the community of faith as the believer. On the other side, you can get so caught up with the community of faith that you never have a personal time with the Lord. And you, you just start loving this community and all the joys of this community such that you never get... this this understanding of God and so much of the church is this way where there's never a personal seeking of God. And it's not not one or the other. It's both. God wants us to have both of these things and He keeps us in this place. This is the life of the believer. This is what He takes us through and this is in fact what He's called us to. To keep us from self-pity and to keep us from self-reliance. Somewhere, Between those two is the place that God has called us. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Word of God. Lord, I pray that You'd keep us from pride. You'd keep us from self-pity. Father, I pray that we would learn to take Your look and to be encouraged To conquer because of your luck. Go in this, your strength. Father, I thank you because you can empower and you can fill. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. The grace of God be with us, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.